Hey there, just a little note to say that I recorded a lot of this episode prior to the death of George Floyd and the subsequent protests. I think I need to note that at the top of the episode because for me that changes everything and it should change everything and it should change how we have these kind of conversations. So I wanted to make that note at the top of the show to let you know the conversation with Liam Cunningham took place afterwards and you'll You'll understand that and uh, appreciate the really powerful things he has to say on that once we get there. But I did want to say this at the top of the episode and also to say my thoughts are with you wherever you are in the world. However, this has affected you. I'm with you and so is Irishman Abroad. And in the weeks to come, we'll announce plans for what we're going to do to try and initiate the change that has to happen as a result of this awful, awful thing. So you've just to watch it. They've no idea they're doing it. I mean, you know, Trump yesterday was a perfect example of a thug who's threatening his own people with the, with the military of America for protesting against, you know, the, the obvious murder of a human being on the street in front of cameras. And he's threatening. You know, that's page one of the bully playbook. It's extraordinary. And, and these people, as we know, bullies are generally dumb and very insecure. And whatever's happened to them in their youth, you can feel sorry for them, you know, if you're not at the end of their stupidity and their yeah. violence. There's a portion of me feels feels sorry for Trump, and then there's a portion of me feels, uh, how could you put somebody like that in charge of, of a, a country that's so militarily powerful? For more where that came from and to hear the complete extended cut of this interview in full with no ads every week and to get access to the full back catalogue of every single episode that we have ever released for just the price of a pint every month. Go to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Let me give you a few figures to start things off today. Globally, up to 1 billion children aged between the ages of 2 and 17 experience some form of violence every year. 1 billion. 1 in 6 children worldwide live in a war zone and 28 million children have been driven from their homes by violence. 3 million girls are at risk of FGM each year. Each year. The majority of these girls, this will take place before they're 15 years old. 
World Vision's Head of Programmes in Ireland, Morris Sadlier, their ambassadors, Liam Cunningham and Roz Purcell, join me today to talk about these realities and how World Vision wants to end violence against children across the world once and for all. And it sounds like a huge task, doesn't it? But you should know that in 2019, World Vision Ireland reached more than 161,000 children through its programmes. How? Well, I thought I'd ask Morris, Raz and Liam to break it down. They have been on the ground and seen that across the development and humanitarian programs in Africa and the Middle East, World Vision are working on the ground to stop and prevent violence against children and young people by going to community leaders and working with them, basically to ensure the rights under the national and international laws and treaties are protected for these kids. So first off, I speak to Mara Sadlier, Programmes Director for World Vision Ireland, and uh, we talk about the charities campaign. And then we go to Liam Cunningham and Ros Purcell, who you'll all know. And they're the ambassadors for World Vision in Ireland about the work they've done and seen in the field and what they've witnessed. Our own chosen charity partner for the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network is Jigsaw.ie. Please support them. Jigsaw.ie forward slash now. I'll tell you more about that later in the show. But for now, let's start this off with Mara Sadler, the Programmes Director for World Vision Ireland. So, Morris, it is great to have you on the show at what I'd imagine is a really, really tricky time for you guys. Can you explain why it might be tricky? Thanks, Charlotte, first of all, for having me on. And it is indeed an extremely busy time. We're looking at, I suppose, the first time in my lifetime anyway, and in many people's lifetime, a global pandemic that has brought the world to a standstill. And that Mm -hmm. is impacting the development programmes and the humanitarian programmes that we are implementing overseas. So like the lockdown we have here in Ireland and similar to you have there in London, in many of the countries we're working with, they're on complete lockdowns. So we're trying to figure out how to do our humanitarian programming and how to deliver services to people in need in this context and how we continue to run our programs for the most needy in an appropriate manner in light of context, in, in light of COVID even. Yeah, that sounds absolutely impossible from a million perspectives, but also from the perspective of there's people here who, who go, well, look, I've got to sort my own house out first. You, you obviously must feel tremendously deprioritized. Um, I suppose I wouldn't say that in a way because we've seen tremendous generosity from the Irish people on a number of sort of issues over the last while. And people are still aware that there is a huge need out there, both in Ireland and internationally. And many of the conversations I've been having with colleagues in South Sudan and Senegal and Syria over the last while show this huge need there. I was talking to the guys in South Sudan last week and they were telling me there's 25 ventilators in the whole country of 11 million people and they're able to do 125 tests a day for COVID. So you have this situation where there's a huge need but this, the ability is much, much smaller than we have here. So I think people understand that quite well when they look at, OK, we've challenges in our health sector here, but we are much better off than other countries. Mm. So, uh, you know, when we talked about doing this, the priority of the, the conversation is to, I guess, draw attention to and, you know, motivate people towards this campaign that 
long-running campaign of ending violence against mm. children in the developing world. Now, when you go down through that and the things that you discuss on in your literature, such as the simple things such as registering births, just actually yeah. getting a child registered as a human being existing in the world, it kind of makes you realise exactly what a huge mountain this is to climb just from the basic basics of just numbers yeah it's 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 pretty astronomical and like our figures show that an estimated 1.7 billion children every year are affected by violence of some form so that's a huge number and we've actually seen that because of covid an approximately 85 million more girls and boys will be exposed to physical sexual or emotional violence over the next three months so that's a huge so what's that come from like what is the what's the basis for that is that just based on the rise in reporting that you've seen or is that just a projection so it's some it's based on some projections and some already anecdotal evidence we're seeing already and some rise in reporting already so it's there's in 177 countries they're implementing school shutdowns so that's across most of the countries of the world Mm. so like here in ireland people are now at home where they're most exposed often they're at home with the people who are abusing them in some form Or they're at home in a situation that is much more tense and much more... Fraught. Fraught than normal. I was thinking, I keep saying this to people, I've spent a few days downstairs with my kids trying to do schoolwork. And I'm not a natural teacher. (laughs) (laughs) We live in a grand house Mm -hmm. around a kitchen table. And I'm thinking... Running water. Yeah, exactly. Electricity. They both have their PAM or their, what you call them, their tablets. And they get to do their homework on those. Fine Wi-Fi. I'm like, if I was living in... An IDP camp in the middle of South Sudan or Syria, where my home is a tent or a one-room make-up house from a bit of iron I found. How difficult is that situation to teach your children? Yeah, what how, that is? how is that staying home? I mean, this is barely a home that's, as yeah. it is. And as anyone will tell you with kids, I've got one of my own, that like, no matter how great a parent you think you are, this has been more fraught. Like we have all found ourselves raising our voices more than we normally would. And when I'd imagine it's hand to mouth, when it literally is now, there is no income uh, whatsoever. That must, as to go back to my question, that must precipitate this rise. Definitely. And that's it. And that's exactly where these figures are coming from, that we see more reports of children in reporting violence or abuse or potential for it. But what we are doing is working with community structures. So I suppose, yes, it's there. We are seeing these figures, but World Vision, even in these difficult situations, we're working with community structures to get them aware of child protection issues so that we can have some sort of reporting mechanism in place still. So in Syria, Mm -hmm. we're working with digital processes so that people can use WhatsApp or use other ways to kind of communicate that there is a protection need we're getting messages out to the community using our systems that we've built over a long number of years. Where Vision is, has really strong community presence. We work right, right at the community level and our staff are right there with the community. So they've huge um, networks and, and systems with these communities. So they've been working with c- child protection committees at a community level for a long number of years. So these committees have strong skills and ability to get messages out there now, to, to be monitoring and And they can kind of tell when things are going wrong in houses and see how they help with those. Well, listen, Morris, I get that you have to say to us that World Vision is working. And I know that you're not 
pretending that it is. It is mm. working. It is doing its job. Yeah. But all I think when I come to this is like, how is how could it possibly continue to work under these circumstances when, you know, if you're seeing a rise in reporting and the mechanisms for reporting are locked down, then there must be a massive amount of unreported violence against children now that correlates with the rise in the report. Yeah, and we do know that um, violence against children is significantly underreported globally anyhow. So you're, you're perfectly right in that there is an issue. And I suppose what we're trying to do is just raise more awareness around it, make sure children are, re- are reached with messaging to, to let them know mm. that they deserve better, that they have rights, that they don't have to deal with this. And the communities, and I do think the communities we've been working with have a much better understanding. I had a very interesting discussion in South Sudan last year with a member of a parent-teachers committee. And he sat and we were having a discussion in the school around the work we were doing and how it was going. And he just turned to me and said, how do we chastise these boys who are being naughty? And I, I knew what he wanted me to say. But he knew that that's no longer what they can do, despite it being fine within national laws. Corporal punishment is not a, a illegal inside Sudan at the moment. So we have we're we're creating a much better sense around the communities of how children deserve to be treated and should be treated. Well, I'm glad you bring that up there because that's what I pictured when you know I I read about you guys educating parents because essentially you're trying to turn the dial of a cultural shift in a lot of places yeah. and. Yeah. Let's be honest, a lot of listeners, Irish abroad and at home, will know that we're not a million miles away from a time when that was how it was naughtiness, inverted commas, was dealt with. That sure, hit him an old slap there and he'll, yeah. he'll remember that. That's uh, it, a yeah. kick in the arse. That's what that fella yeah. needs. Tell me about adjusting that culture, because getting that through to parents that there's another way must be exceptionally hard when even now, uh, you know, my wife is an educator and, you know, there's older versions of how to teach that are locked in with with teachers. And she's seen it from every job that she's been in, the, the old school versus the new school. You're dealing with a situation where somebody's in a really often impoverished place mm. where they don't, they don't they probably don't feel like they have time to sit down or get to the eye level of the child to get them to cop on or listen and learn. Yeah. A lot of the work we're doing is with sort of community leaders and faith leaders. So we work oh, with those okay. who are, um, I suppose, people look up to them and listen to them and people seek their advice within the community. Right. So we work with parent teachers associations and we work with community members, but we work in particular with those people who will be listened to. Right. So, so it's not will, the white man walking in going, don't, no, don't no, be using no. a stick. And to be honest, if you look, we as World Vision Ireland work with our national offices in all these countries. There's very few Mzungas, as they call them in West Africa, white people there. Hmm. It is very much local community members. And our staff, and it's one thing I'm, I'm very happy with the way World Vision works is we hire local staff. It's local staff who deliver the programs. We provide funding. We provide technical inputs. We go out and make sure that the money has been spent as the Irish government or the Irish public asks us to. But it has really been done 
by our frontline staff who are from the local communities or from the local areas gotcha. in conjunction with the community. So it's very much a partnership at community level. So you, you've been in this area, senior management level of this kind of stuff for more than 13 years now uh, mm. in countries like Malawi, Zimbabwe and Tanzania. What from those years sticks out in terms of witnessing the positive impact of stuff like this for the skeptics that are listening going I, I don't know if, if uh, my money's better spent close to home yeah I suppose god there's lots of them that stick out across the years I know I keep harping on about South Sudan but well I was in DRC most recently but I was in South Sudan and it was my first time there just before Christmas and I, I really probably one of the most difficult working environments I've visited in a while and just the impact of our work there. So we are doing simple things, renovating classrooms. So going from temporary learning structures to more temporary learning structures, but just improved because these are people who were displaced. They're two weeks walk from home, so they're not going to stay there forever. But it was going from a thatch building that the rain came through and that the kids sat on the floor to now, I call it galvanised, there's no tin roof, tin walls, desks. And I went into one classroom and there was 150 children in the classroom, 157 year olds. And such is the impact of our work on the, the parents saw the value of education. They saw that there was good places to send their children to school, that the teachers had got some training. There was books and pencils for their children that they were sending the kids to school. And I was like, whoa, how could you deal with 150 children? And they were perfectly behaved. It was it was amazing. So it's things like that where it's quite simple interventions have huge impact. Mm. I was in Sierra Leone twice last year and we work in a place called Shebro Island. Irish Aid supports our work down there. And it is a seven hour drive from the capital and then a an hour on a boat across an estuary to the island and then another 30 minute to one of the communities, Mania. And I went to the community and there's a health centre built with support from the Irish public years ago. And it's still functioning. It's still running. People are going there for their health. The structures of community health workers that had been trained by World Vision are still supporting the community, delivering health messages, delivering nutrition messages. So these structures that we're putting in are lasting a long, long time. Yeah. And you're going back 15 years later and things are still functioning as they were meant to. I mean... That's uh, that's extraordinary uh, that like it's not a kind of a piecemeal gesture mm. that then goes away. Uh, I mean, and that's that's often the worry, right? That when you, yeah. you do this, you make your say you set up your direct debit for this, that y- you'd no way of really knowing whether it's invested or mm. whether it's swallowed up. Like you must know better than anyone, Morris, that. A lot of aid gets swallowed. What can you say to people about, you know, how the structures of World Vision work to prevent that and kind of avoid the pitfalls that other uh, charities of this sort have seen over the years? Yeah, and I suppose we're working on top down and bottom up accountability. So we're all accountable to each other. And us as World Vision Ireland, we're accountable to the Irish government who gives us money. We're accountable to anybody who gives us money for our child sponsorship programs within Ireland. So we have a responsibility to report back how their money is spent and what it's spent on. And we do that by, as I spend, and not at the moment, but I'm travelling at least 
a week or two a month for the last two years. Mm. Visiting the work we do, making sure that it's happening, making sure it's in place on the ground. We work really closely with our national colleagues in developing work plans and developing budgets and making sure that those are based on the need on the ground. And then this is where the bottom-up accountability comes. The communities are involved in this from day one. So the minute we go to a community and say, we've identified this as an area of need, we'd like to work with you, let's develop a community development or what we call them an area development programme. And they identify their needs and they hold us to account. They know how much money is coming into that community. They know what that money should be spent on. So they know how to complain and they either complain to the local government or they have numbers where they can complain to the head office of the country. We didn't get what we were what we were meant to. So, so it's it's working with those communities. So it's not just giving them stuff, but it's also empowering them to hold us and government to account yeah. for what we should be delivering. Well, Mara Sadler, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you again for taking the time to do it. And I wish you the very best luck with all of this fight. And uh, I know that uh, hopefully thousands of our listeners will jump on board with you from this point. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Thanks for having me. So this has really been a tumultuous couple of weeks for the world in terms of violence. I guess we're seeing things that we never thought we would see. And I I think it's kind of brought home some of the brutality of the world and some of the things that World Vision are covering and dealing with and what we're, we're talking about here today is really being forgotten in all of this. While all of these things take place on our doorsteps for a lot of our listeners and my thoughts are with all of those who are caught up in these protests and the violence that's been across the states this past couple of weeks these communities in the developing world are largely being forgotten and that's why we put together this world vision episode i've put out a ton of other content since lockdown we've probably tripled the size of irishman abroad i'm happy to do it but i can't continue to do it without your help if you'd like more of this and if you'd like to receive all of our content and access to absolutely everything we've ever produced simple way to do it is just to sign up for premium it takes a couple of minutes and for the price of a pint every month you'll get access to everything and you'll have the comfort in knowing that you're helping continue this podcast and uh, for me to continue providing these episodes to you one thing that's struggling at the moment is a lot of these charities that previously had gone one-to-one and were on the ground face-to-face with the people that needed their help uh, have had to move online and that's the same for our chosen charity partner jigsaw.ie i've mentioned them before but really the turmoil and uh, violence that's facing kids today and the mental strain of the violence of what we're seeing in the world like it's tough for us as grown-ups to deal with but for youngsters it's uniquely disturbing and the anxiety and stress of it has seen a 400% rise in demand for jigsaw.ie's services so they've moved what were their bricks and mortar services online jigsawonline.ie is where you can find them now so maybe you have someone in your life who you'd like to reach or you need help with if it's a kid or your niece or nephew or maybe your brother or your sister has kids and they're at a loss as to how to deal with the mood swings and difficulty of homeschooling 
go over there jigsawonline.ie is the place to visit and see what they've got and maybe they can help you and maybe you can help them by donating at jigsaw.ie forward slash now tons more tons more podcasts for you including the now government approved we had a tweet from the the irish embassy here in london for people to go and listen to Irishman Inside Basketball. Now, if that isn't good enough for you, I don't know what is. It's been such a fun series to put together. We are heading into our fourth episode, and this week the episode is with uh, George Mumford. So last week, Susan Moran, who you heard here, if you tuned in, was an Irish girl who is basically the Michael Jordan of Irish women's basketball who went and followed her dream to Philadelphia and St. Joe's University and dominated there and went on to play in the WNBA. It was an amazing story. But George Mumford's story is even more extraordinary. George Mumford is a mindfulness coach who found himself when the game forced him out through injury, addicted to heroin. He discovered mindfulness as a way to get off the drugs and then created a stress relief program for inmates in prisons and black people in the inner cities of America to cope with stress. Then Phil Jackson from the Chicago Bulls discovers him and brings him in to sort out the mindfulness and the headspace of that team that had lost their leader, Michael Jordan, who was on his first retirement. George Mumford goes in and rallies this team around the idea of meditation, mindfulness and becoming flow ready. And to hear him explain it is something else. I'm so glad we got that interview done and it's out on our premium feed over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad or on its own feed Irishman Inside Basketball check it out I won't delay any further let's get back to this conversation as we move forward now into the discussion with Liam Cunningham and Ross Purcell Liam Cunningham thank you so much for doing Irishman Abroad I've always wanted to do a full episode with you and if anything maybe this will lead to that because your work with World Vision I guess it touched the hearts of a lot of Irish people particularly the appearance on the Late Late Show when it was obvious to me that you were trying really hard to control your emotion in that moment how hard is it when you're aware of all of this stuff to actually kind of keep keep a lid on it so that you can deliver the message? It's a tricky one. Uh, I mean, emotions are all, are all well and good, but they actually don't get anything done. Um, mm. So, uh, I mean, you use the term about controlling my emotions. You have to. There's no point in turning your hair out. That it, it doesn't really help anybody. I'm very passionate about it because I'm, I'm passionate uh, about injustice. I just, I don't like saying it. I don't, I never, I didn't like school bullies. Mm. I don't like um, aggressive bosses. I don't like people with power having to insecure people with power mm. who have to um, basically crap on people be, uh, to, to prove their worth, mm. uh, especially when you take advantage of people who don't have, you know, uh, who don't have the same blessings that you do. To, and to see that I've never liked bullies from when I was in school to to see people in expensive uh, designer suits doing mm. it to people who live in mud huts or people who are homeless or people who don't have a job. And, then, uh, and that sort of that disgusts me. And that's at the centre of this, right? Because this is yeah. this campaign of World Visions to eradicate violence against children globally. Yeah. It, it is. It is just that. Like it is a weaker being yeah. being minimised and abused simply because of that position. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, the fact that we have to have a campaign 
to highlight violence against children and to try and stop violence is in itself Kafka-esque to me, that we actually have to try and raise awareness and try and do all that sort of thing. Uh, um, I, I mean, uh, it, it's 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 embarrassing almost that that it has to be done. And also, uh, I mean, for, I mean, talking about the campaign, uh, it, this is for practical reasons. Uh, and I'll give you for instance. I mean, uh, a few years ago when, when Italy and that that appalling human being. Uh, Matteo Salvini, um, that right-wing, bordering on fascist, if not fascist, uh, politician. When they started not taking refugees from the Mediterranean and people were dying, and Italy, to be fair to them, had you know an um, an unequal amount of responsibility for them because of where they're geographically placed on the mm. Mediterranean. The same problem with Greece; they they had problems. They should have been given a lot of people in Europe or the European Union sort of. Turn it, put the blinkers on, and uh, and basically paid lip service to it. Uh, not enough was done. But at at that time, I don't know what the figure is now. But I remember two or three years ago that the miners, as in the kids, there was ten thousand uh, miners went missing. In other words, they got onto the show, were registered La Hola, and then disappeared. Uh, ten thousand, did you say? Yes, yes, and it'll, I'm sure it's a lot more now. Um, they just they just disappeared off the map. They were you know begging whatever they may be. Now the problem with this is is that the first they're obviously not being looked after. If they've gone missing, there's nobody looking after them because they can't find them. The problem is down the line when these people when these youngsters impressionable people young people uh, are not being looked after and not been taken care of is that they'll turn to the first people who show them kindness. Hmm. The problem is, is that when violent people are looking for, um, in inverted commas, an army and start giving food and comfort and whatever it may be, that's where people loyal, people's loyalties are going to go to the people who've shown them kindness. So this could end up very, very badly for the mm. people who are supposedly going to be taking care of these unfortunates. And it will come back and bite us on the ass, as they say. Yeah. So this is not just about trying to do the right thing. It's also trying to do the right thing for my kids and your kids and, you know, your brothers and mothers and whatever it may be. Mm. Uh, it's it's not only to take, by taking care of them, you're taking care of yourself. So why then is there a campaign? Like what, it, what do you attribute this kind of... Uh, knowing blindness to what's happening that you've seen, like you've seen it, like South Sudan, Syria, nature. Uganda, Greece, Jordan. You, you think it's human nature? It's, it's human. It's human nature not to want to deal with bad times, especially if you're having a good time. Hmm. I mean, you've only you've only to look at the states. States at the moment, over the last while, and it's going to get a lot worse, I would imagine. Have you heard any mention of the coronavirus in any American news channels while this is going on? What happens is it goes off the front page and doesn't get talking about because they have, uh, what do you call it, rioters, they have protests, they have police behaving like animals. You know, you've got the possible introduction of the military and all that sort of thing. So a global pandemic has just slipped off the front pages. Mm. The same thing happens elsewhere. I mean, it's, it's the reason that this stuff is happening in the States at the minute. The, the people in the gated communities are the people in the lovely houses with the white picket fences, they don't want to see what society has been doing to underprivileged people who haven't, you know, haven't been given the chances in life that they have. So instead of saying, hold on a minute, this is unequal, they blind themselves with possessions, with their their position in society, and people get left behind. 
Uh, you can't leave people behind because if you keep people behind, you create infection. And an, and, an, and, an, and and what you're seeing is, you know, the pimple has burst in America. Mm. And it was the straw that brought the camel's back. I mean, the way they were, the poor and, the you know, the dispossessed were treated during this um, the global with the pandemic with the coronavirus thing in the states uh, this thing has pushed people over the edge and in a sense quite rightly what was the edge for you then because you know i know about your trip to zimbabwe in 1984 and how you hadn't really been anywhere up until that point yeah was there stuff that you saw there that you know made that activated this thing in you that said that when the World Vision opportunity came up that you were going to take it with both hands because you haven't just done, you know, a, a little trip here and there to a no. nice safe cabin. I mean, you, Liam, have flung yourself into this like most ambassadors won't. What was it for you? What was the tipping point or the thing that changed in you that maybe we could address in the listeners, that if we could yeah. access that in the listeners, maybe they're much more likely to follow your path in giving the scary thing about it is and we all try to protect ourselves anybody that has it's human nature to kind of say and it's not a mean thing it's about i'm all right jack i've done well for my family i look after them that's my responsibility outside mm -hmm. that i feel terribly sorry for people in bad but it but it's not my fault and therefore in 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 essence it has nothing to do with me but the world doesn't work like that that's human nature but the world doesn't work like that the thing that got me, I've never liked, I mean, I was a punk. I was a, you know, a, a small teenage reactionary <laughs> when in, in my, in my late teens and I became a punk and, and it was about carving, carving out your own, kind of carving out your own personality, I suppose. Mm. What happened when I went to Africa and it was, I mean, culture shock is too small a word for it. I'd never been on a plane. My first time on a plane was going to live for three and a half years in Zimbabwe in my early twenties. And a kind of obvious thing happened to me, which which may sound obvious, but it was kind of uh, cathartic for me, was the fact that these people, I realized, are exactly the same as me. They wish, you know, it's like, like Sting's old song, that the Russians love their children too. I mean, you know, to, to start a war, the old, the old playbook with, uh, with starting a war is demonize people, dehumanize mm. people. So is that we don't have any empathy for them and it makes much easier to put them on fire with bombs from planes. And that that's always been the playbook, appeal to um, people's basest instincts. Yeah, that's sure, how, other, that, other them, make them, make them something yeah. other than you. But you were seeing yeah. Liam Cunningham, Zimbabwean Liam, Liam Cunningham there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you you come across. I, I, let me give you an example. There was a gorgeous guy that used to work at the depot I worked in. I mean, for your listeners who don't know, I was I used to do kind of high voltage uh, installation and maintenance and all that sort of stuff. So I worked in the bush for for uh, about three and a half years. So I was out in the thick of it, as they say, for for that period of time. And I remember in my depot, there was a uh, one of the guys that used to clean up the depot, the, you know, the car park and all that sort of thing. And I used to have a chat with him most mornings and see how he was going. He's a bit of a philosopher, this guy, older guy, hmm. uh, very elegant black dude, delightful human being. And he was wearing the most gorgeous pair of shoes, uh, which I knew you couldn't buy in the small town that I was in. They were, you know, quite very elegant kind of yeah. wo woven moccasin kind of things. And I said, where'd you get the shoes? And he said, oh, my, uh, my, my son uh, sent them over from Germany. 
And I went, what's your son doing in Germany? And he said, well, you know, the sons and brothers and cousins, are. there's a mixture. They're not necessarily the birth father. So they have a corral, which is over there was kraal, K-R-A-A-L, kind of a South African uh, word. But literally, mud huts surrounded by fence, uh, subsistence farmers, and the extended family would live. I think Nigerians do a lot of it. They basically, you know, they have a compound and the aunties and uncles and everybody lives in these wonderful mm. communities. So what happened was all of them were very poor in this uh, extended family kind of corral. Uh, and they came across one of their younger kids who was there who showed uh, academic um, talent. So of the corn that they sold, any excess on a good harvest, they would put away for this kid's education. Wow. So everybody, I mean, the pressure on the kid must have been yeah. enormous. Huge, huge at a young age. So basically they put all of their profits, all of their, you know, spare money, whatever it may be, they're, uh, uh, on, on this guy's shoulders. Mm. They got him through university. He became a doctor. He was in a hospital in Germany and he would send back basically Red Cross parcels, uh, tea chests full of stuff for the... So he was basically looking after the village, this poor village, because they'd all got behind him to educate him. And he became um, a very successful uh, clinician in a, in a hospital. Uh, I said, and I asked him, I said, what else, what else has he sent back? And he said, a Mercedes. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, he sent back a secondhand <laughs> Mercedes in a container for the family so they could move stuff around and he got a good deal in it and stuff. Now, that sort of thinking from subsistence farmers who are, you know, occasionally dressed for special occasions in traditional costume. There was another guy, there was a guy that, with a double master's, my boss, Mr. Vujajena, which means whitehead, which is ironic. Um, and I said to him um, for Christmas, I said, what are you doing for Christmas? I, I didn't know whether he was, and he was Christian. And he said, we're going to get a mombi, we're going to get a cow, and we're going to string it up, and we're going to butcher it, and, and we're, we're having beef. We're uh, not sacrificing, that's, you know, they were, yeah, what do you call it, but, yeah, they're going to slaughter it. And, uh, and I said, what, what are you doing? What's the, you got, I said, no, no, we go full traditional. So he gets, so he gets the, the gear on, you know, be it the grass gear or whatever it may be, or the skins on and the headdresses and all that sort of thing. They dance in the square. And this is a guy with a double masters uh, from America, from uh, and he was, um, what do you call it? Engineering was was one of them. Um, an extraordinary guy. Uh, very eloquent and uh, funny guy. Great sense of humor, the whole lot. Mm. And uh, he, he could live in those two extraordinarily different worlds of putting on traditional costume in his, in his village, home village. And at the same time, he was like the chief engineer for the area. And, the, and uh, as I say, with a double master's. And... Uh, and I just, you give people opportunity. I mean, the one thing you ask kids in, in Africa what they want, and they or, or, almost to a man or a girl, they will say, I want to go to school. I want to get education. They are dying to mm. be educated. They have a hunger for education. And I think as, you know, as people who've been lucky in the world, you have an obligation to, to try and assist in any way you can for those people. For one very simple reason. If the situations were reversed, we'd like for them to mm. do it for us that's basic morals for me and and it, it just seems logical for me not not it doesn't seem like i'm going out in any sort of mm. limb or anything like that and i love getting to africa i kind of have a bit of a love affair with the place anyway it's fantastic yeah like that does explain it Liam, because you know that awakening essentially that you have even there when you're working for the esb and in that yeah. trip at a, a young age 
when you haven't mm. really thought outside of your box. Something yeah. that I guess I've brought up with Morris and I've brought up with Roz already on this episode is how mm. we've retracted inwards as a result of this pandemic and how yeah. we have become a lot more local viewing. And yeah. probably what's happening in America is widening our gaze to things that we haven't acknowledged fully, but were yeah. aware of. When, yeah. when you go out there, right, when you first see that donations from World Vision mm-hmm. aren't getting swallowed up into the coffers of corrupt people, as Correct. as cynics would tell you, uh, they will. Yeah. Uh, that's, you're that's, actually that's people, yeah. that's people saying that as an excuse not yeah, to give exa- any money. Exactly. That's, and that's, that's why that's, I refer to them as cynics. Yeah, because yeah. The, the, expl- explain this one to me that I've heard you say before, that mm. if uh, you... World Vision head out there with enough to build a fence and a hut. Talk to me about the difference a fence and a hut can make. Okay. Uh, One of the places that I uh, went to uh, specifically, and I've seen this in a few different places. Well, I'll give you an example. So people, people think there's various levels of thinking. There's people who give a bit and go, I wish I could give more. There's people who don't want to give a bit because they think uh, the administration is corrupt and it goes into somebody's pocket and all that sort of stuff. So they find all these excuses uh, not to not to dig deep. Let me tell you what what about two euro can do, right? Now, not specifically two euro, but two euro to us is whatever it is. Is it a litre of milk? Is it, it's less, not even the price. Less than a cup of coffee. Yeah, and, and not, even a, not even a loaf of bread over here, right? So for these couple of two two euros, for instance, I have seen these uh, child safe spaces. Now, again, to the cynics out there, they go, oh, when they hear safe space, they think, oh, blah, 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 this, that and the other. These are genuine safe places. So you've got a chain link fence. Now, over there, it probably costs about the tenth of the price that it does over here, mm. right? Just because of the way we live. So for a few blocks, a few breeze blocks, where you can build a hut, which is basically the size of an average living room, and a fence, which costs next to nothing. The service that provides for these kids, the safe space. Now, this safe space, the reason it's there is because the kids who come along to the safe space have witnessed horrific trauma. They've Some of them have witnessed their parents being murdered, their siblings being raped. All, I mean, just horror, absolute horror. And what they get to do, a lot of them won't talk about it because a lot of kids, you know, just turn it inward and don't want to talk about it because it means reliving the horror. Mm. So they don't want to talk about it. And that's a time bomb. That's a psychological time bomb. So what I've seen the volunteers doing is taking these kids in. I've been in, in amongst them while, this, while the classes and the safe space uh, shifts were going on. They dance. They sing. They meet older kids. They laugh. They run around. They're so hungry for their childhoods. Uh, and they get an opportunity. They get a few hours. So for the price of little or nothing, you've given people an opportunity to deal psychologically with the trauma that they've seen. Mm. You've given kids an opportunity to, to to become kids again. And these places are so popular. They have to do it in shifts. They might do four shifts a day, two hours, two hours, break for lunch. And the kids are queuing outside to get in mm. because there's all the kids organizing music and reading and all sorts of stuff. And this is for the price of a cheap chain link fence and a, and a few blocks and a bit of corrugated iron for the roof where you can take kids in and talk to them. And the kids who don't know how to mingle with other kids, they're kind of looked after by the older kids and by the World Vision volunteers. 
and it just it just reignites your faith in human nature to see people have a genuine concern for the well-being of children and looking after them and it's the same it's the same with the with the families, with the women, uh, I, you know, I've seen World Vision organising uh, business classes, entrepreneurial classes for ladies in Juba in South Sudan, where they have to come in, they get a small amount of money each week to buy uh, their basic resources. And then they're helped, helped to set up roadside um, uh, trading tables and all that sort of thing. And I've bumped into a number of women with young kids. And I said, but are you, are you in profit? And they go, yes, yes, it's been a great help. Uh, I'm in profit. And I said, what do you do with the money? And they say, oh, I put it away for my child's education because you have to pay. It's like $50 a year for a primary school education, which is a huge amount of money to a poor person in yeah. Africa. But if you think about it, 50, what's that? 40, 40 euro yeah. to educate a child for a year and give them an opportunity and hope for their future life. So whatever little bit you're actually giving, you can multiply it by t- minimum of 10 for the effectiveness that it's going to have on the ground. A two, two euro, whatever it may be, is a huge sum uh, to send over for the for the assistance of these gorgeous people. See, that uh, thing you mentioned there of self-sufficiency is, I think, uh, something that's come up again and again. Morris raised it initially that, you, you know, we have a vision of an NGO wading in and the white savior complex. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, here's here's a load of T-shirts when yeah. when in fact what people need uh, and what we would need were we to be in that situation is the capacity to create for ourselves. Exactly, exactly. And this comes back to dignity. Well, uh, I'll expand on that. The, the when I got over there. Because I, I definitely thought it was, yeah, the, the white saviour coming over and, you know, you give a man a fish or give him the fishing rod and all that sort of stuff. Mm. When I got on the ground, the people who were looking after us and who were organising and in charge were locals. Now, this is not for completely practical reasons, is that the white people that were coming in didn't speak the language. Of course. They weren't, they weren't culturally au fait with the, with the victims. So you, need, you needed local people. So not only you were, you were training up local people, they were also in, enormously responsible for organizing stuff, doing all the paperwork. There's a huge amount on the ground that are employed uh, to look after their own people. The idea, World Vision like to get these things off the ground and go to the next hotspot and mm. create a base where that can happen where the locals can look after each other, which I think is the honourable way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think, Liam, you do an amazing job of articulating it, of uh, putting it across in simple terms. And, you know, I I think that probably having that core belief in bullying being wrong and an understanding of the dignity of the person and yeah, I mean, you've just, you've just to watch it. They've no idea they're doing it. I mean, you know, Trump yesterday was a perfect example of a thug who's, who's threatening his own people with the, with, with the military of America uh, for protesting against, you know, the, the obvious murder of a human being on the street in front of cameras. And he's threatening. I mean, that's, you know, that's page one of the bully playbook. Mm. I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's extraordinary. And, and these people, as we know, bullies are generally dumb and very insecure. Yeah. Um, and whatever's happened to them in their youth, you can you can you can feel sorry for them. You know, if you're not at the end of their stupidity and their yeah. violence, you know, there's there's a portion of me feels feels sorry for Trump, and then there's a portion of me 
fields. Uh, how could you put somebody like that in charge of of a a country that's so militarily powerful? Yeah, we can um, feel sorry for him when we get his hands off the levers. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. We until, can, we can until send then, we've got the, a problem. Uh, yeah, we can we, send him off for the appropriate psychiatric help as soon as <laughs> yeah. he's out of there. Yeah. But you know. Uh, there's no end, right? There's that. This is another thing that is, puts off the cynic. That like these yeah. problems are always going to exist, is is such a such a throwaway <laughs> remark that probably every Irish person listening to this has heard somewhere yeah. along the line of, Asher, you're wasting your time. These people are always going to be like this. They'll always it's, be. It's absolutely untrue. And I'll give you. I'll, let me give you an example of that. So in South Sudan which is the youngest uh, country on the planet. They only got their independence in 2011. They are incredibly fertile, this country. It's on the Nile. They've also got the unfortunate look of having very high quality oil. Uh, a lot of people call it the resource course. And there's people fighting over the oil. The State Department, uh, there, there's, uh, there was essentially almost you know civil war going on there. And as a result, famine. This is, this is a place that's not like the Sahara Desert. It's extraordinarily fertile. Mm. Recently, you can Google this if you want. There was a, a retired Israeli general was was sanctioned by the uh, Treasury the, uh, Department in the, in the States because he was selling weapons to both sides of the conflict and was caught. Now, people make money out of chaos, right? And it's in their interests to keep this place unstable because then they can get cheap resources because the place is unstable. There are 60 different languages in South Sudan because there are about 60 different tribes. They have everything in their country to feed themselves. But because we don't put international pressure on the people involved, the players on the ground, it's starting to ease up a little now. It came incredibly close to a failed state uh, because of this. I spoke to the heads of the World Food Programme in Juba, uh, very highly educated and delightful people from the United Nations. And I said, if you look geographically at where South Sudan is, it is two countries, basically two countries south of, of Libya. You've got Sudan above it, then mm. Libya, and then you've got the Mediterranean. Now, we've already seen the med with people trying to escape from Libya who were treated incredibly badly. There was lots of um, uh, North African workers from Somalia and Ethiopia and, and Varian Congo and places like that working in Libya when the oil was streaming and they needed workers. Uh, as soon as that fell apart because of the behavior of various Western countries, um, these people became refugees. And what they wanted to do was go somewhere where they could feed their families. And Europe, the med, it was the obvious place. If you were starving, that's where you yeah. take them. Go to Europe, try and get a job, feed your kids. Now, I spoke to the World Food Programme. I said, if this fails here, if the world, you know, if people start, if famine bites because of politics, there's 12 million people. I said, is it beyond the rounds of, of, of uh, possibility that these people would head north? And he said, they haven't done it yet, but there's every possibility that they would. So you have the possibility of 12 million people heading north, hitting Libya, and the Mediterranean being awash with boats, with people heading, because we didn't take care of business with mm. South Sudan and allowed these people to look after themselves. And it will be our fault that it happens. Uh, so when I say, you know, people, we need to look after places that are in conflict in Africa. Obviously, it's because we should. But also, I want to, I want to protect Europe from having this influx. Uh, and my kids' future and your kids' future and your whatever it may be. And to do that, we need to um, 
uh, solve the problem uh, where the problem is yeah. instead of creating one by trying to, you know, rape the resources of a, of a magnificently beautiful country. I know that um, uh, I've had times in entertainment where I've had, I think I was woken up to how you're probably only about three bad decisions away mm. from being homeless. Essentially, and I, I was abundantly aware that 2013, I can I can remember, yeah. you know, I wasn't I'm not saying that I didn't have safety nets. I just yeah. realized at that time how mm. flimsy and paper thin the whole thing was. No, it's I'm, extra. It's extraordinarily uh, uh, flimsy. There's, a, there's the old saying that we are four meals away from anarchy, mm. which is when you think about it, there's four days that you go to the supermarket and the shutters are down the first day is is okay that's just a oh this is not good second day you kind of okay when you've got the third day when your kids are going i'm hungry dad you're going in through that and that's for that the, the the estimate is it's four days before you've got civil unrest so were you uh, and, would, would you when the reason why i bring it up is like you know you retired at 29 is the is the line that yeah. you you use technically, you, yeah. technically you got the send off from the esb and the, the, I, I the drinks i i worked for esbi for a time myself i know that they do yeah. love a good send off oh yeah <laughs> and, uh, you know you obviously you roll the dice then is that period of kind of uncertainty what forms this version of Liam Cunningham that cares this much? I thought, listen, the, the bottom line is, the, the irony is, I'm complaining about the same stuff now I did when I was an electrician. It's just that nobody listened to me then. <laughs> yeah. now, I'm, now I'm the bloke off the telly <laughs> uh, and this temporarily, uh, you know, temporary celebrity. Um, people will give you a voice, you know, because they, you know, you're recognised. Mm -hmm. You're a with a with a very small H. You're a that's sort of a household name. You got to use and, it, and, and as you got you got to use it. Uh, and not only that, I'm I'm under no illusion. I'm not in the minority here. I I I, I think I, I I don't speak for, but I think I've got the same attitude that a lot of people have. There's a lot of mums and dads out there who would who would love the opportunity to do what I do because I have the luxury of being able to do it, to advocate. But they're looking after their kids. They're trying to pay their bills. I get, I get that. And I was like that for a long time. So in a sense, I'm speaking up. I'm giving out on behalf of the other people who want to give out. Do you know what I mean? I do. So so uh, it, it only makes I, – I can't look at this 10 years down the line when – when people find me on the street and, and people say, look, I think that's that guy that used to be in Game of Thrones. <laughs> if I can't, I can't look back at 10 years time and go, why didn't I complain at the time? I need to be able to look in the mirror. So that's why I do it. Well, Liam, promise me that we'll come back and do an episode about you and all of that story that comes before all this. Uh, but yeah, I'm not that interested. I wouldn't bother, Gerald, to be honest with you. I get out of it. I'm not that interested. <laughs> yeah. That that won't fly here. We we we've got a half an hour out of just one small aspect of your life, Liam. We'll please do come back and do a proper episode on your own. I will, life. of course. I will, of course. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. On behalf of the listeners, thank you for all your work, and uh, hopefully our paths cross when all of this is behind us. They certainly will. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. No problem, Liam. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. Cheers. Stay safe. You too. Bye bye. 
My name's Porter Carrington. My name is Chris O'Dowd. My name is Philomena Lee. My name is Brian O'Driscoll. My name is Tommy Tiernan. My name's Eamon Dunphy. My name's Ashling B. My name is David Walsh. I'm Ronan O'Gara. My name is Cecilia Hearn. My name's Stuart Lee. My name's Jason Mumford. My name is Jamie Heathcliff. My name is Damien Dempsey. My name is Robert Sheehan. My name is Keith Gillespie. It's Mr. Hector O'Huckagon. My name's Mark Lawrenson. My name is Shane Horgan. My name is Louise O'Neill. My name is Hosier, and you are listening to An Irishman Abroad. Ros Purcell, it's fantastic to have you on this episode for World Vision because, like Liam Cunningham, you've done substantial work for them and visited places that other people wouldn't get to see and get to see what World Vision do up front and in front of your eyes. How did you first come into contact with World Vision? Why was it a no-brainer that you absolutely had to work with them? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I started working with World Vision Oh, about eight or nine years ago. And I guess their role in helping young children all over the world when it comes to education, equality, and obviously to reduce violence and educate them on their rights was something that I was hugely passionate about even before I started modeling and all that. It was mm. uh, in secondary school, I actually worked quite closely on projects around that. So it was a charity that I felt I knew a little bit about and also I could help raise awareness. So I, I really want to get involved because it was, you know, a, another huge thing for me was my mum is a school teacher and I've always helped her out in the school, even as a teenager on my summer holidays. Going into college, I came home and helped her. And I just really, I suppose, hold a strong value for education, especially in young children and for them to understand their rights. So, yeah, it was a charity I really wanted to get on board with. And then I suppose meeting the people behind it furthermore kind of just drew me in. Yeah, they're amazing folks. And I always think that um, it's nearly hard for people to wrap their head around how someone can devote their entire time to this. But then those people tend to be people that have gone and seen it in the same way you did. Maybe we talk about Syria first, because my understanding is that when you first went to the Syrian refugee camps, it was only beginning and that the thing that one of the many things that shocked you at that time was exactly how these weren't in, in refugees, inverted commas. They were you. They were your friends. They were people that worked in fashion who used to have a, a house and now they were seeing their husband tortured and were living in these tents. Can you take us back to that uh, moment and exactly what you saw? Yeah, I guess out of all the World Vision trips and, you know, things I've done with them, this is definitely the one that's been most ingrained in my mind for numerous reasons. The humanitarian crisis was actually going on in Syria. This was his third year. But I think the time that I went to Azraq, which was one of the newest camps, it had just started to hit the headlines. So there's obviously other camps, but this was a new one we were going to visit because World Vision were actually doing all the water and sanitation there. So we went and I guess for me, I I didn't really know what to expect going in. And I felt quite naive once I got in there and I was leaving because, like you said, these people weren't refugees. They were people just like you and I had normal jobs, lived in two story houses. They, you know, had designer clothes. They had iPhones and everything was taken from them and they had to flee their countries. And hearing the stories of women my age at the time, I think I was 23 when I was there, 
who had to flee the borders with their children um, was just, you know, I think every day we see the news, we read the paper and we become quite desensitized by it. Mm -hmm. But I think when you're there firsthand, it's so much worse than reading it in black and white, hearing people's stories, seeing their scars. And I always remember one, there was actually two people I met there that have always stood out to me. One was a couple, a husband and wife, and he had scars all over his head from electric shocks. And her, she had half her face missing from an explosion before they fled. And they had nothing. They were just living in a small hut in the camp. And she couldn't even leave the hut because of her face. Um, they had no light. They had no electricity um, to charge their phones. And that was their life. They had no hope. It was really difficult to meet people who, like I said, just like you and I, who were just broken. And one of the saddest parts was they all love Syria. They loved it and they really wanted to go home. And there was a glimmer of hope that this will end and we will go home. But it just wasn't really realistic. So it was very, very sad to see all these people just congregated in the middle of the desert, mm. surrounded by fences, living in this camp. Obviously, it was fantastic that World Vision are there to give people what they need, like clean water and sanitation. Because when I asked, I met a lot of women my age. And, you know, one question I asked a lot of people was, what do you miss? And it was such simple things like just privacy, having your mm. own bathroom. And I think, you know, for a lot of these women, they wear veils. So they constantly had to wear veils because they were never alone, yeah. um, which was very hard, obviously, in the heat. But, yeah, it was definitely... I think one of the most awakening experiences of my life, just realizing how lucky we are all to, you know, live in Ireland, grow up in Ireland or, you know, in some parts of Europe and not have to deal with this and just feel safe. Yeah. Because these people do not feel safe. And I, a, a huge, like when I look back to it, there's so many memories that, you know, when you, as soon as you mention it, that come flooding in. But while I was there, you know, all the kids were kind of running around me because they we had Dave, who's the photographer as well. So they were all interested in what was going on. Mm. But the, how they played their games was missile noises, killing each other. And I remember just thinking they have no concept of what playing is. What they're doing is just reenacting what they've grown up in, which is just utter traumatic war. You know, a plane can't go over their head without them thinking something's going to drop. And it was really, really, really sad. One of the hardest parts about that experience was leaving. You know, I get to go back to living my normal my, my life and I'm leaving these people who are just like me, who have just, their roots have been lifted up from beneath them mm. and they have no hope, you know. And I guess the one thing that they just kept saying to me was, please, please, please help. Please go back to your country and tell them we need help because we feel shut off. We feel that people aren't listening. They don't know what's going on. And if if you were in this position, we would help. I mean, that's 2014. Is that correct? Yeah, 2014. I mean, it's hard to believe that six years ago, like that is like that's bananas to me. Yeah. That, you know, and the situation hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. No. 
And when I think back to the Azraq camp, that was brand new camp. And I, I actually oftentimes when I think I Google it now and I just see how overcrowded it is mm. and I go, it's it's heartbreaking. So the the violence that World Vision talks about ending is, you know, it, it's a massive task. And as you say, it is about re-education on a lot of levels in a situation like that. It's the actual situation itself is the violence, the the uh, removal of normality that you spoke about in various different pieces you did and the incredible awareness you raised off the back of it through as you say, just spreading the word as much as possible, reliving it, telling it again, as hard as that was, that these kids missed just normality and routine. And I think that if anyone's listening to this now can identify a lot more now, six years on in the situation we find ourselves in with exactly what that does to a kid and how untethering them from what they know to be constant and reliable has on them mentally. What did you see and what do you remember of seeing those kids there? And maybe you could take us to Mexico, a similar situation, if different to like when you met those kids, like what, what was in their eyes? Like, if that sounds weird to say, like, what what was it? What did you see in them? Well, when I went to Mexico, I think that was about two years after. And Mexico is definitely where there was a lot of, obviously, Mexico, there's a huge gang problem. And I think when we went to Mexico, they're really, their main mission there was helping young teens break the cycle of poverty and crime because a lot of them feel that joining these gangs is a way out for them. It's a quick way to make money. And I guess, you know, when it comes to joining a gang, you know, these kids, they're they're not expecting them to hold a gun right now, but they can do very superficial level stuff like be a spy or look out, you know, if mm. guards are coming. So these kids join these gangs for a little bit of money because, you know, you know, they feel lost and, you know, maybe they don't, they're not getting an education. And I always remember this statistic. Now, obviously, it could have changed. This was five years ago, but. From the time someone, a, a child or teenager, joins a gang in Mexico, their average lifespan is 37 days. Yeah, I read this and I just couldn't wrap my head around it. It's obviously an average number. And it, as you say, it's of the time and I'm sure everything's changing. But that is that is absolutely disturbing that yeah. you, you've basically got a month to live once you join up. And when that's you're taking that as your best option, I mean, that again, that's frightening. But how do you then like what is World Vision doing there as far as changing that? Like, what can they do? I mean, that's a, a situation that's so ingrained in the culture and in the poverty mm. that it's hard to know. You tell us what what do World Vision do in that scenario? Well, I guess the main thing what World Vision are doing, and obviously education is power. Uh, they're re-educating the teachers who in turn re-educate re the children um, about the crime levels and about, you know, obviously, you know, things like the death rate and why they should stay at home. But they're also educating them on their rights, their rights to have a safe home, their rights to... Um, be able to have an education. They have lots of programs there to prevent violence at home or in the streets. And I think a big thing was getting the teachers 
to educate the parents. You know, your child should be at home doing their homework. You know, you need to make sure that they're not out and they're joining these gangs. You know, so it's kind of that whole generational thing. And I remember meeting a group of young girls. I think the area was called San Miguel. Um, and they had said to me that, you know, their parents hold no value in their education. And this is something that, you know, they've been taught from their families and they want the young girls to go straight into work as soon as they turn teenagers. But with World Vision, they were able to break that cycle and they were able to like, you know, really educate the children and teach them the importance of having an education. And if they wanted a way out, it was through education and it was through just understanding their rights and you know, I suppose almost the children teaching the parents about it. Um, mm. And they also, I remember they had a really interesting program. It was a program specifically for males to help, to teach them, I suppose, to express gender equality to women, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I guess just a great way of looking at it. So especially in Mexico, they had a lot of programs dedicated to crime, a lot of programs dedicated to equality, and education that were really, really interesting. And I actually used to live in Mexico a long, long time before that, about four years previously. And my idea of Mexico from then to my World Vision trip was so different. I I guess I'd never really gone out to the suburbs of the city. Like you've 22 million people living in such a condensed area. And when you go out into the smaller suburbs, people are basically living on top of each other you know and I feel like there's such a focus on children going straight into the workplace Mm. whether that's with gangs or local shops or industries and not getting the education that they deserve Um, so World Vision are really working on the ground there to ensure that because crime is just absolutely everywhere you know we even had our own experience when we were in Mexico we had, you know, Dave, there was a cameraman, I had a camera and there's a few other people with us and we got attacked by a gang just outside the school. Uh, to walk uh, us through that. So we were arriving into a, a small primary school and next thing, and obviously this was, you know, we had been taking some photos along the street before we went in because we were doing an article for The Independent and obviously they had a spy who had been watching us and called a local gang and said, you know, there's, these people here with lots of great equipment we had lights we had cameras and everything so next thing we were ambushed when we were about to go into the school what does now, that look like know. well i guess you know instinctively my reaction is to fight back which isn't great if you're in mexico because, so are guns you know, drawn like obviously no, everyone watched so, narcos and stuff and you have this yeah, idea no, there, was, there was no guns drawn but I guess in my head, my first thing to do was when someone grabbed me was to push them away. And then my second thought was, I'm not in Ireland here. You know, mm. they could have a gun. Mm. Um, so what I did then was I actually ran to the gate of the school and banged for them to open it because all the schools had, and a lot of the properties there had security gates. So I, I was banging on it to let to open it so we could try get in there. Mm. Um, I turned around and the photographer was on the ground trying to hold all his cameras. He had about three cameras and a light. And I just remember thinking like, God, he's a brave man. So I kind of ran back to kind of try to drag him in. And at this stage, people from the school had started running out, like some of the teachers and some of the staff. So it it scared the gang. They ran away because there was a lot more people than them. There was about four in the gang. 
but yeah, one of the women who was with us had to go to hospital because she had cracked her head off the ground when they pushed her. I mean, so this like just like that's a just a Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is, was you know, it's just like yeah. you know, it is. I think that um, pandemic and all of this has, as you say, opened up our idea to how messed up life can be, because, you know, as peculiar as this situation is for ourselves, that like that kind of craziness for a child to live in has like just an impact that, you know, can lead to parents, to those kids growing up to be parents who go, look, don't waste your time going to school. This mm-hmm. is this is the, the thin ice that your existence rests upon. So there's very little point in investing in anything further than that. I don't think we have time in this episode to, you know, get right into the weeds of this and how this comes about. And uh, what we do know is that World Vision is putting in place programs. And as Morris told us in the first half of this interview, that what they do is tend to go to the leaders of these communities and address how beating your child is not the way forward or is not the way to get your child to behave, inverted commas, because this is such a kind of brutal uh, culture to live in that I'd imagine that under that stress, any parent would be uh, forced towards that. My question to you, though, is there must be a bit of a Neil Armstrong thing to this, that you are 24 when you're out there. And you have to, as you say, return to the superficiality of Irish culture, the world that you were existing in at the time. And as you said, you your life went through a substantial change around then as you kind of came to terms with things in your life and how you were approaching things and struggles that you were having. Did this impact on that? Did this precipitate that change? Definitely. You know, I don't think you can go somewhere that's completely different to your life where people are suffering and not change you know I think you'd have to be a very peculiar mm. very you know lacking like in empathy yeah. yeah empty person to not have not have a change or not want to change things about yourself if you find that things are difficult because you're meeting people who are going through such difficult times such difficult circumstances people who are broken, people who feel like they have no hope and children who are growing up with just no value to them. You know, they have kids who feel like they have no self-worth and it's really, really difficult. And then you see these amazing people from World Vision who are on the ground, who just have so much love, so much hope and so much drive to change this and you know you're having two contrasts in one and you come back and I think first of all like I said you feel extremely grateful but secondly you don't really want to waste time Mm -hmm. you know you want to live your life to your fullest you want to help people um, and I think you kind of lose a bit of your ego and you realize there's a lot more going on than just you and your life yeah I mean like the the change that you underwent was dramatic and, you know, potentially life saving, Roz, like you were on a path to God knows where. I mean, to an extent, you know, World Vision saved you as much as it saved the lives of these kids. Yeah, like I, I guess for me, I was going through severe eating disorders at the time when I was traveling with World Vision 
And, you know, there was times when I was in the refugee camps and I would think, you know, we were kind of snacking on whatever we could have. And a lot of it was, you know, sugary or carbs food. And in my head, I would go, oh, I shouldn't be eating that. And I'd feel guilty about it. And then I'd look around me and go, how am I even thinking about this right now? So definitely through the experiences of of going to the Azarac camps and going and meeting teens and school children in Mexico, it brought a lot of gratitude back to my life and a lot of presence and a lot of, I suppose, like I said, you know, shedding your ego and realizing there's a lot more going on mm. and being able to live life to the full. I think, you know, sometimes we forget that this isn't a dress rehearsal. We do have one shot at life and I guess that's the whole method behind what they're re-educating people on in Mexico is like, this is your one chance at life. And, you know, like for children to have that hope that they can be whoever they want to be and, you know, not to be stuck into this general uh, generations of non-education and joining gangs is to break the cycle. Mm. And that's, you know, for myself, what I need to do is break the cycle. You know, um, I think sometimes uh, there's a dim view taken of how much actually doing stuff for charity is for yourself and why there's nothing wrong with that. Like the Dalai Lama talked about there being, you know, two kinds of generosity. Uh, One is selfish generosity and, you know, the other is selfless, but that there isn't there isn't much wrong with either as long as they're they're generous that like uh, I uh, listeners will know that I may have mentioned this, that I gave a kidney to my brother in 2017. And obviously I did it to save his life. But for for me, like I got a tremendous amount out of it, like I really did. You got a tremendous amount from doing this. And I think that sometimes it's hard for a charity like World Vision to sell doing stuff for them on that basis because, you know, how do you even word that? But it is something that helps me sleep. You know, it helps me to get out of myself just mentally in terms of my presence and kind of a peace of mind, knowing that I'm not such a bad guy. (laughs) I did this thing and uh, doing good work and doing something Thing for, for World Vision or maybe committing to doing a monthly thing like sponsoring a child yeah, actually and has I guess, positive repercussions for your life. Yeah, and I guess like the, one of the greatest things in life is being able to give something to someone. Whether it's something small like, you know, someone, I get such a buzz out of sharing a recipe and someone recreates it. Hmm. And I think you need to think about, you know, when you go get a coffee, you know, even right now, play, takeaways are back, back open. Hmm. Like that four euro you know, are you going to get more value out of giving that four year to someone who needs it or having that coffee? Yeah, I mean, there's so much. Uh, I don't know if you're in this, but there's so much online shopping happening within this. And it obviously is comforting, right, to to essentially yeah. get a gift in the post of, you know, a, a new top or whatever. But like it doesn't actually take a huge amount to just pause prior to making that next online purchase to go, well, actually, you know what, I'm just going to pull up another tab and give that to uh, World Vision, given our conversation here. I mean, this is this isn't a problem that's going away fast. Right. So that's the other the other place I wanted to take this in the final stage of our conversation. I should say this, Roz, I really do want to hear your full story. I hope you'll come back and join me for a full episode about 
that journey that you've kind of hinted at and described here because it is it is epic but the long-term process that's taking place here in terms of eradicating violence against kids this is a long game and in so many ways that can be off-putting for people when they go oh well look sure how, how are you going to eradicate that? Just because we're eradicating it is hard doesn't mean that you don't continue to fight it. it. Does it play on your mind in the midst of all this how much COVID-19 has resulted in a surge of a lot of these problems that World Vision are trying to fight? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, domestic violence or violence doesn't stop in a pandemic. If anything, it's probably getting worse. Mm. You know, you have people going through a strange time and when people go through a strange time, they can, for for a while anyway, react quite strangely and be different. So I think, if anything, right now, we're all quite consumed with what's going on in our lives. And we're all very much, you know, I think very conscious of as we should be you know yeah, we were attracted inwards yeah our, our health we are retracting inwards whereas you know there's still a lot going on in the world like can you imagine being in a azraq refugee camp now with the global pandemic if one person gets it in that camp mm-hmm. mm. you know so i think you know we can look at azraq we can look at the built-up places in mexico we can go to any populated third world country and if this global pandemic is making everything so much worse and I think what you said is just a really positive thing you know while we go on we're thinking about doing an online shop buying a top for 15 euro or a top for 20 euro like on world vision you could simply buy a gift and you can actually see where that's going to whether it's like sponsoring a child to get books or you know buying something else like that like that's actually that's real giving like that's going somewhere that's not just going to give you a momentary momentary bit of happiness, but actually give something to someone who needs it. And especially more than ever right now, we need to be giving. Roz, it's been great to talk to you. And I do mean that. Please, uh, let's just arrange it uh, after we get off the phone here, because we need to do your episode and uh, hear your story. And, uh, you know, we can still talk about World Vision in the context of that and how as you say, that was a turning point, but it has mm-hmm. been a total pleasure to talk to you, Roz, and thank you for taking the Thanks time to me. do this. And good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you so much. So massive thanks to everyone at World Vision Ireland, especially Mara Sadler and uh, Fiona O'Malley, who helped set this episode up. So great to have World Vision on the show and to highlight their work and to use this platform to point out what they're doing and explain what they're doing and obvious it's obvious they need your help to do it so if you can help do our uh, chosen charity partner on the show here is jigsaw.ie both need your support so please do reach out uh, both very very worthy causes my thanks to brian Connolly for his production to tina and mikey for making this possible and to all of you guys for rating commenting and subscribing to the show for more on this and to hear maybe a little more of these conversations without the ads it's easy patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad and you'll get access to absolutely everything we've ever produced over there hundreds of episodes you can't hear anywhere else i will see you for more during the week we've got three more episodes coming out this week that you will enjoy 
get them all in one spot as i say by signing up for premium but for now just take care of yourselves look after yourselves be kind to each other when you're out and about be aware you don't know everyone's story you don't know what people have seen or what they've been through or who they're missing right now so just go to kindness that's what i say guys uh, and i will talk to you next time on an irishman abroad You don't get to be racist and Irish. You don't get to be proud of your heritage, plights and fights for freedom while kneeling on the neck of another. You're not entitled to sing songs of heroes and martyrs, mothers and fathers who cried as they starved in a famine. Or of brave-hearted, soft-spoken poets and artists lined up in a yard, blindfolded and bound while waiting for Godot or point blank to sound. We emigrated, we immigrated, we took refuge and so cannot refuse when it's our time to return the favour. Land stolen, spirits broken, bodies crushed and swollen, unholy tokens of Christ nailed to a tree. You hang round your neck, like the noose of the free. Our colour pasty, our accents thick, Hands like shovels from mortar and brick lay in every foundation of the cities you stand upon. Our suffering seeps from every stone your opportunities arise from. Outstanding on the shoulders of your forefathers and foremothers who bore your mother's mother. Our music is for the righteous. Our joys are earned and well deserved and serve to remind us to remember more blacks, more dogs, more Irish. Still labelled leprechauns, mix, paddies, louts. We're shouting to tell you our land, our laws are progressively out there. We're in a chrysalis state of emerging into a new and more beautiful era. Forty shades better. Unanimous in our rainbow vote, we've found our stereotypical pot of gold and my God it's good. So join us. Because you don't get to be racist and Irish. <laughs>